You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Where we'll be morning, Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 13. We read God's word for us. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present age, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all, stand firm. This is the word of the Lord. Chances are, you probably live a fairly cushy life. A life with hot showers. Praise be to God. A life of reliable transportation of food on demand, whatever you want. A life of endless entertainment at your fingertips. These are sort of luxuries that are unknown throughout most of the world today and throughout just about all of human history. And these luxuries have a way of dulling our spiritual senses and lulling us to sleep. (laughs) Even this morning, we gather comfort, don't we? Perhaps with a warm cup of coffee in your hand, in a heated room, in a cushioned chair, with no fear of a government soldier barging in and breaking up our gathering, all seems peaceful. And we act as if we live in a time of peace. But the Christian life, friend, is not one of peace. It is one war. Even as we meet now, cosmic powers of this evil age long to distract us from hearing the word of God. He will conspire afterwards when we depart and leave this place to send birds to gobble up the word that is sown. We face a spiritual foe that is unceasing in his hate for Christ and his church. And so while we sip on our lattes, Satan schemes his next attack. And while we scroll through our phones, Satan is mobilizing his demonic horde. And while we leave our Bibles on our shelves, Satan is manufacturing his fiery darts. What's more dangerous than being in a war? Being in a war and not realizing you're in one. In Ephesians, Paul has held before us the authority and power of Christ far above all rule and authority. 
He's described how, how even now Christ is seated in the cosmic realm of the heavenly places at his Father's right hand. But in the present age, here right now, in this moment, we have been saved by God's grace to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel calling we have received. And so the Christian, as Paul has described us in this letter, we're called to walk in unity with other believers in a local church, joined together, maturing, building one another up in love, and we put on the new self, marked by holiness, marked by distinction from the world of darkness. And our holy distinction, as Paul has described in Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6, is the most personal aspects of our lives, our, our very household. But as Paul concludes his letter to the Ephesians, he throws cold water on our faces. The cold water of reality. We do not walk in a manner worthy of the gospel in a neutral environment. We have a foe who opposes this work. And he is fierce. We must prepare ourselves to engage in this battle. Today we're going to study Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, where Paul reminds us of the battle. He's going to remind us and let us know of the reality of our enemy. He's going to remind us of our need for God's strength to persevere and to persist, and that we must rely on God's strength as we put on his armor. And so as we begin our study of this section of Ephesians this morning, we're going to first identify the source of strength. Second, we'll look more carefully at our foe as we understand the schemes of Satan. And then thirdly, we will hear God's call for his saints to withstand the devil's attacks. Let's first think through the source of our strength. Where does our strength come from? Paul closes out this section of Ephesians, and indeed as he's concluding the whole letter, he closes out with the word, finally, finally. He moves towards the conclusion of his letter by urging the church to be on defense, to be on guard against the darkness of the evil one, and we're to do so by putting on the whole armor of God. If the church will survive, if they'll persevere, if they'll be built up in love and unity and gospel partnership, then they must, look at what it says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, and that we must put on the whole armor of God. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, shortly after Christian's burden is lifted, and he begins his journey to the celestial city, he visits the house beautiful and a symbol for the church. So Christian tours this house beautiful, which represents the church in the allegory of the, of the Pilgrim's Progress, and he gets trained, gets equipped for his journey. And it's in the house beautiful that Christian is given and dressed in armor. As Paul said earlier in Ephesians, the church leaders are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But what are we to equip ourselves with? What are we to be wearing? What do we put on as we resist the devil's schemes? And Paul tells us, these are the letter. We put on the whole armor of God, the, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of gospel readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the Christian's armor. 
the transition from the relationship of this text between slaves and the armor of God seems a little strange to us, but it would have been especially surprising to the Ephesians in a way, but not the way we might have expected. Slaves and masters jointly with all Christians are given the call to put on the whole armor of God. Slaves and masters jointly. You see, armor for a Roman soldier communicated something about his rank and status. How much more does the armor of God bestow on those who wear it? And as those who are redeemed by Christ, all of us, no matter who we are, jointly, as God's people, put on God's armor to defend ourselves against Satan's schemes. And we fight against this enemy together, jointly. So due to the context of our passage on God's armor, we tend to think about this passage in a sort of individualistic sort of way. It's the way we often read the Bible as Westerners, isn't it? We, we think of the armor of God something like finding Q in a James Bond movie. You might remember what Q does. Q bestows James Bond with all the gadgets he needs for his mission. And so he goes out, James Bond's a one-man army with an arsenal of equipment to help him win the day, whether it's an, an exploding ballpoint pin grenade or whether it's a toothpaste of explosive gel or whatever it is, we tend to think of the army of God as something I need to go win the day of my own volition. And the assumption in this text, the assumption about all Ephesians, is that the Christian life is a corporate one. It's when we live together in the gospel. And so as we think about the Christian armor, the assumption behind it is that Paul assumes we're wearing this with other Christian soldiers, if you will, as we fight against the devil and his schemes. You see, individual Roman soldiers weren't very powerful, but if you get a unit of those soldiers together, working in coordination, that's where the strength comes from. Military strength did not come from a well-equipped single soldier, but from a legion of armored soldiers working together. Paul emphasizes in Ephesians that the church takes center stage in the cosmic realm. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9 through 10 tells us that God displays his manifold wisdom through the church, making it known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Language that Paul returns to here in Ephesians 6. So as Paul envisions this spiritual battle of rulers and authorities, the church is the one who stands center stage victorious as the display of God's wisdom in the gospel. So if the church plays such a center stage role, if God elevates the church as the great demonstration of his goodness and his wisdom and his grace, is it no wonder then that the horde of hell attacks the church with such violence? Churches and the Christians who make up those churches must put on God's armor if we will withstand his attacks. Like Christian going through the house beautiful, the church is the place where we are equipped with the whole armor of God. And it's the armor that we need if we will progress and persevere on the way of holiness on the King's Highway. But verse 10, I think, is essential for understanding this whole section on the armor of God. Because Paul clarifies in verse 10 that the strength that we need is not our strength, it's God's strength. Look at what he says. 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. You see, it is through our union with Christ in the Lord that God makes His divine strength available to us. He gives it to us. Indeed, God's power and strength has been a theme throughout this entire letter to the Ephesians, hasn't it? Think back to Ephesians 1 verse 19 where Paul prays that the Ephesians might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And by the working of God's power, we have seen in Ephesians that God raised his son from the dead and has seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul says in Ephesians 1.21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And so while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the air, God overcomes the devil and makes us alive together with Christ. And Paul was made a minister of the gospel. Ephesians 3 verse 7, he says, by the working of his power. And so Paul prays at the end of the chapter 3. He prays that wonderful closing prayer, that doctrinal section, that the church would be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being, that they may have the strength to comprehend the fourfold measure of God's love. And it's in his doxology, as he closes out that doctrinal section of his letter, look at Ephesians 3.20, flip there. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. So masterfully, Paul closes out this second half of the letter, filled with moral imperatives and commands and exhortations to walk worthy. He closes it out by connecting them to the doctrinal section of his letter. And so as Paul concludes this whole letter to the Ephesians, he begins to interweave these two sections of the letter together, reminding us that if we will walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, then we must depend on the strength of God that first saved us and the power of God that we now have access to through our union with Christ. So if we are to survive, the onslaught of the kingdom of darkness that gnashes its teeth in hatred towards God and towards his people, we need, we must be empowered by God's strength that he has graciously made available to us in Jesus. Left to ourselves, left to your natural ability, you will not stand. You cannot stand. But God has made his strength available to us. How? He's done it through our union with Christ and the armor that he has provided. <clears throat> Paul sees in verse 10 and 11 of our text somewhat of a causal relationship between verse 10 and 11. Even though it doesn't put therefore in between these two verses, that's the sense of Paul's meaning here. The relationship is implied. We could say, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God. So Paul's point here is that if we want God's strength, then we must put on God's armor. The battle we fight is a spiritual one, friends. A spiritual one. Natural means taken up in the flesh cannot achieve the victory we need. If we go toe-to-toe with the devil in our own strength, you will get your tail kicked every time. We need the might of God's strength. We need his strength. We must be dependent wholly upon his power. 
And so we put on the armor of God that he has provided us because it is the means that he has given for our protection and perseverance. The spiritual battle that you face even today cannot be won by natural means. Self-help, self-improvement, self-care will not do. Without the whole armor of God, you run naked and weaponless into a battlefield. And without the shield of faith, without the sword of the spirit, what chance does your karate chop have against the gnashing beasts of hell? Our strength comes from the Lord. Therefore, we must put on his armor. Second, let's think clearly about our foe, the schemes of Satan. Shortly after Christian and Pilgrim's progress departed from the house beautiful, equipped with his armor, he entered into the valley of humiliation. Sounds like a pleasant place. And there in that valley, as he begins to enter into it, he spots the foul fiend called Apollyon. He's blocking his way, preventing him from moving forward. And as Christian sees him from the distance, Christian's first inclination is, well, maybe I should go back. Then he remembers, I've got no armor on my backside. And if I just simply turn around and march the other way, I would be an easy target for this beast. And plus, the way forward to the celestial city is forward, not backwards. So with courage, Christian decides to keep pressing on and to confront the beasts that lie ahead. In the gospel, Paul tells us that if we are to grow in unity and maturity and holiness, all this comes by God's help and God's strength. But as we seek to become the new self, as we seek to walk as children of light in a world of darkness, we do not do so in this neutral environment. No, there is a pressure being pushed against us. We are in a battlefield, and there is an enemy who opposes us. And if we are to succeed over our enemy, we must recognize who he is. Paul tells us that the Christian armor helps us to stand against the schemes of the devil. To stand against. And in verse 12, he elaborates further on just who our true enemy is. Look at what the text says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present age, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemy is not an enemy of flesh and blood. Our, our human being, other human beings, are not our enemies. Never are. But it is the malevolent spiritual forces who rule this present age. Make sure you get your targeting straight. The church's weakness in our day stems from our failure to identify the true enemy. We too easily confuse the enemy's schemes, manifested sometimes in the lives of other people, confusing that with the enemy itself. So we turn our attention to combat people. Professors, corrupt pastors, political parties. But such human beings and their institutions are not the enemy. They are merely victims of the devil's schemes. Our true enemy lurks behind the scenes, 
He looks behind the scenes, manipulating the church to be distracted with a flesh and blood foe in order to conceal his own trickery. And so the devil looks like a master of sleight of hand who distracts the church's attention from Jesus to weaken us with petty squabbles of flesh and blood that divide us. J.C. Ryle notes that the cause of sin is never so much help as when Christians waste their strength in quarreling with one another and spend their time in petty squabbles. In a secular age, we have a tendency to discount the spiritual realm. Even as God's people who believe in the supernatural, who believe in the spiritual, we have this tendency of living in our culture, of thinking strictly in the natural sense, of flesh and blood sort of ways. Paul in verse 12 reminds us, it's a reminder we need to hear regularly, that our actual foes are not flesh and blood, they are spiritual forces of evil. And we will not have victory over our enemy if we don't spot who the real enemy is. When, when it comes to the domain of darkness, Christians have a tendency to make two equally opposite but dangerous errors. On the one hand, we can sort of dismiss in entirety uh, and pretty much functionally, at least, disbelieve the demonic realm, never thinking about it, never considering it. And on the other hand, Christians can have this sort of unhealthy obsession with the demonic realm, where, where every time we face a problem, no matter what it is, whether it's a sound system not working right or a car not starting, well, I'm being attacked by a demon, right? So we, we don't want to do that. But both can lead to danger. And perhaps, at least among us, in our context, in our church, I think our danger is to discount our true enemy. It's indeed, one of Satan's grand schemes in our secular age is to cause us to ignore his existence. As the scripture tells us, Satan and his minions have great power over the world. And so we can't just easily disregard our foe. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 5 that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan is called here in Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 2, the prince of the power of the air. So the rulers and authorities that Paul refers to in our text, these refer to spiritual rulers and authorities. Though Christ is over all, ultimately, they do wield incredible power over this present age. The, the cosmic powers are, are the cosmocrats of darkness. That, that was a term that Paul uses here. It was a term used elsewhere in astrology for, uh, for planets, which were thought to control the fate of humanity in the pagan world. That, that cosmocrat language was used in referring to hymns to Zeus, or referring to Nebuchadnezzar and other pagan monarchs, often used in reference to the Roman Empire. The, the, the term that Paul uses here implies the spiritual authorities who have worldwide rule. So the present darkness of the age comes from the rule of spiritual forces, Paul says, that are in the heavenly places. Now, now the term heavenly places in Ephesians doesn't refer to, to heaven itself, per se, but to the spiritual realm. Christ sits above all, as we know. Paul's told us that. Above all, 
And we now sit with him by faith. But the evil spirits, though they have been defeated by the resurrection, they get to be destroyed. And they are too prideful to admit such defeat. And so they continue in protest, in treason, in rebellion to exert their evil in this world until one day they will be dethroned by Christ at his return and tossed into the lake of fire. And so even though Jesus is superior, we cannot overlook our present foe. He is fierce. He is aggressive. He is powerful. The battle we fight each day in the Christian life is not one of flesh and blood, but of cosmic powers of this present age. It's interesting as you read the New Testament, the apostles never talk about defeating the devil, only resisting him. James tells us, James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Peter describes that as the devil is one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And we are to resist him, he says. Similarly, Paul tells us here not to defeat the devil in Ephesians 6, but to stand firm, to stand against the schemes of the devil. In other words, we are to have, this is what the scriptures call us to as Christians, to have firm footing, readiness to endure his attacks whenever his blows and darts come. And the devil's attacks will come, friends. It will come. The schemer of hell's army will attack you. Will you be felled against them? Or will you stand against them? If you are strengthened by God, if you are strengthened by the bestowal of his armor, you will have victory. The whole armor of God is what enables us to withstand against his schemes. And the devil is a schemer. He's a schemer. He's crafty. He's sneaky. He's deceitful. And he is too much of a coward to attack us directly. So he attempts, he conspires, his plans to entrap us by surprise. Satan knows He's not a fool. He knows that he cannot overcome the fully equipped Christian. So he avoids a direct assault. The devil is a coward who lurks in the bush, waiting for a surprise attack for when we let our guard down or when we take off our armor. And he knows that he's got no chance of winning a direct confrontation with a Christian guard and the whole armor of God. And so therefore he conspires to catch us at our weakest. Our weakest. When we let our spiritual guard down, when we stop being watchful of our hearts, when we are negligent in putting on this armor each day, that is when the desires of the world will entrap and attract our hearts the most. That is when he will mount his full-forced attack. His sinister schemes require us to be utmost in our village, uh, vigilance. He attacks us when we least expect it. He attacks us when we are the most vulnerable. Because the devil is cunning. He's a cunning creature who has grown in his cunning as he learns the intricacies of our fallen nature in the last thousands of years. It takes a lifetime to grow masterful at a skill, maybe an instrument, the arts, particular professional skill. It takes sometimes a lifetime to become a master at something. But the devil has had millennia to master his craft. He is a skilled foe. He has studied humanity throughout the generations. 
He's an accomplished philosopher. He's an accomplished theologian. He's an accomplished psychologist. And so his schemes are varied. But I think if we sum them up, there's three primary tactics that he tends to employ against a Christian. Deception, doubts, and decadence. Let me briefly talk about each one. Concerning deception, he is a liar. He's a liar. He deceives us, the scripture says, by disguising himself as an angel of light. He enters the church as a wolf in sheep's clothing. From the beginning, he, he has twisted the words of God around on their heads with just enough lie to make it sound truthful to the undiscerning ear. Jesus himself calls the devil the father of lies. So his lies spread throughout the world and can spread throughout the church like gangrene, leading people to more and more ungodliness. His most effective lie, I think, that he spread over the last few hundred years is the lie of materialism, that all that exists is the natural world of atoms and molecules. And he's largely convinced the West completely, pulling the wolf over our eyes to deny the supernatural and to just completely ignore the spiritual. And why does he do that? Well, because under that lie, he can operate under concealment to spread his lies even further, while at the same time blinding the hearts of humanity from even wanting to seek a God they no longer believe exists. It's a masterful scheme, conspired by the great deceiver. But his deceptive attacks against the church comes through a variety of false teachings that deny the gospel and its power. The prosperity gospel, Trinitarian heresies, worldly philosophies, a denial of scripture's authority and sufficiency and so much more. And against this scheme of deception, the church must, must have firmly buckled the belt of truth. Without a commitment to the truth of God's word, to the truth of the Bible, and the knowledge of what it says, we will be easily deceived. So we teach the Bible at church. And we study the Bible. Not to puff ourselves up with knowledge, but to defend ourselves against the devil's lies. There's a second scheme he has concerning doubts. The devil will attack God's people. Causing them to doubt God's goodness, his promises. And he does this in, in two very different ways. He does it through circumstances, and he does it through accusation. When suffering and affliction come into our life, as it inevitably will, the devil will tempt us with doubts to question the goodness of God. He will take whatever grief or sorrow or pain that you are presently experiencing, and he will tempt you to doubt God's fatherly care and goodness to you. Like the first temptation in the garden, he will insinuate so very silently that God is withholding from you, that God is harming you, that God is doing an evil against you. And the devil will use your trials to cause you, to tempt you, to question God's goodness and character. As in the sufferings of Job, the devil whispers for us to curse God in our misery. But he also attacks us with doubts through his accusations. In Revelation 12, 12 verse 10, 
Satan is described as the one who accuses the saints. He enjoys, he relishes in bringing to our attention our past failures and our many sins as a way of causing us to doubt the validity of God's promises. While God has promised forgiveness for all who believe upon his son, all who have repented of their sin, all who trust in Christ, Satan will riddle you with guilt over forgiven sin. You hear his accusation in your inner dialogue in your mind, don't you? God can never love me. Messed up too much. My sin is too great. I'm beyond the ability for forgiveness. And by his accusation, he tempts us to doubt the glorious promises of God that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So therefore, we must combat his accusations with the gospel truth and the gospel power. But there's also a third scheme he tends to employ, and this is concerning decadence. I had to create a third deed. I'm sorry. <laughs> Satan tempts the church to abandon God by appealing to our sensuality. When a Christian, a supposed Christian, becomes apostate, meaning they leave the faith completely, it usually comes not from intellectual argumentation, but moral wandering. The devil will tempt us to think, all this talk about holiness in Ephesians, this is a cumbersome thing, this is a repulsive thing that I want nothing to do with. He will tempt us to believe that the restraining of our natural appetites that's a cruel request for God to ask us to do. And in our desires to do sin, we begin to change our theology to justify it. The desire for immorality often precedes a shift into false theology. And though there might be an appearance of godliness, so often it denies the power of holiness. The God of this world appeals to the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, as a way to entrap us in the things of the world so that they might choke out our faith. Moral drift sliding into immoral decadence has called, caused many shipwreck their faith. We have a fierce foe. He is a masterful schemer with a cunning and expertise to launch deadly attacks against us. The opponent we face isn't one of flesh and blood, but is the horde of demonic kingdom of darkness. So when Christian stands down that beast upon in the valley of humiliation, it begins, as Bunyan describes it, as a sort of cordial, innocent conversation. Apollon begins by questioning Christian, just very subtly throwing out seeds of doubt. And when that fails, when Christian resists it, Apollon begins to appeal to Christian's senses by promising Christian that if he turns around, I'll give you wealth and luxuries of this world. Just, just go back the way you came to the city of destruction. But then as Christian keeps persevering, he's resisting his tactics, Apollon gets more aggressive, more confrontational. And he begins to accuse Christian of his past failures so far and his sins. And Christian stands firm. And he responds to those accusations with a bold declaration of the forgiveness he has received in Christ. And upon the mentioning of this premise, of Jesus, 
Apollon shrieks in a hideous rage, revealing his hatred of Christ. And he exposes and makes himself known the true purpose that he stands in that valley, that he had been sent by the enemy to stop Christian in his tracks, to wage war against him, to prevent him from making any further progress on the way of holiness. Christian realizes now's the time to fight, and so he raises his shield as the beast throws a fiery dart and blocks the blast. And then Christian drew his sword. Now's the time to fight. And the enemy, of course, was unrelenting, wounding Christian and weakening him. And Apollon, seeing his chance, moved closer and closer to Christian and began to wrestle against him. And Apollon starts to get the upper hand. And knocks Christian's sword out of his hand. And in a boastful, arrogant way, says, I have you now. And Christian lay in the dirt, the valley of humiliation, with the beast pinning him down, ready to inflict his final blow. Thirdly, let's think through the stand of the saints. The stand of the saints. Verse 13. We have a fearsome enemy in the church. But God has not left us at loss. Look at verse 13. Oh, excuse me. Look at, uh, I'm going to read to you 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He gives power. The Lord does not send us into a battle that we cannot win. He has provided armor for this battle. And because of the danger, now look at what Paul says in verse 13. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Putting on the whole armor of God is a daily task for a Christian. Each day, we must equip ourselves for the danger that awaits. Because danger lurks. The Lord's mercies are new every morning, praise God. So are Satan's schemes. We must daily and self-consciously dress in the garb of God's complete armor by employing the spiritual practices that he's given us, namely word and prayer. Now, chances are, and I pray this is the case, you would never walk out to work Monday morning without your clothes on. That would be a bit embarrassing. But many of us launch our days without being garbed in the armor of God. So you probably don't leave the house in the morning without breakfast in your belly and a warm cup of coffee in your hand, but we will leave the house spiritually famished without a Bible in hand. And while we have this tendency not to get out of bed before checking our messages or reading our news, we will go throughout our day prayerless and thus powerless against the foe we face. Christian, every day you open your eyes and you get out of bed and you put your feet on the floor, you have entered into a spiritual battle. Whether you realize it or not, every day you are thrust into a spiritual war. Our enemy conspires against us to slay our souls. Are you wrestling against temptation of the flesh? Do you find yourself given to despair and discouragement? Are you self-indulgent and selfish? Have your affections for the Lord and his word cooled? Is your heart growing hard against your brothers and sisters? Be warned. Such are the schemes of the enemy. 
And Christian, you are not helpless before the devil's darts. God has not left you vulnerable to his advances. And if we equip ourselves with the armor that he has provided, we will have the victory. Satan cannot win a toe-to-toe battle with a Christian fully guarded in God's armor. Paul tells us to take up the whole armor of God, he says, and what the text says, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. What does Paul refer to here? There are three possibilities. Paul might be referring to a single day of persecution, or tribulation, so to speak, before the return of Christ. Secondly, he might be referring more generally here to the present age, the time between Christ's first coming and second coming. But thirdly, and I think most likely, Paul refers to critical times in a believer's life where Satan's attacks are most intense. Christian, you will face such seasons. Joy and faith and belief seem to be a moment by moment fight. The Christian life is hard, and the enemy will mount his offensive against you to destroy you. Our faith will only survive, only survive if we find our strength from a God who sustains us. He keeps us by his power. And by taking up God's armor, we will withstand the devil, even on the most evil of days. But the struggle for faith, it's not a passive thing, is it? Requires manly action. Requires initiative. Requires persistence. We have created this form of spirituality that is passive. A sort of let go and let God sort of mentality. But God has designed our perseverance in Jesus to come through our fighting through our fighting of faith. J.C. Ryle says, true Christianity is a fight. The fight. If we will grow in holiness, if we will persist in Christ, if we will resist the devil's schemes, then we must fight with the power that God freely gives us. And when you are in the fight for your life, you will do whatever it takes to survive. Paul alludes to this in verse 13. That you may be able to withstand an evil day and having done all, stand firm. In your fight against sin, have you done all that you can? Are you putting on the armor each day to fight against the flesh? Or are you twiddling your thumbs? Are you watchful? Are you attentive? Are you on guard? Are you diligent in prayer? We will win the day. We will win the day if we put on God's whole armor. Because it is through the armor of God that we are empowered with the strength of God to fight. So Paul writes Ephesians in chains, doesn't he? He's in prison. He's had a lot of opportunity to watch a Roman soldier up close and personal the last three years. And the imagery that he sees is fresh in his mind as he writes these words. And we'll talk about the pieces of the armor more next time. But the spark of influence behind Paul's use of imagery of armor actually comes from Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17 where it is Christ, the Messiah, who is described as putting on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Church, the, the armor that we receive is Christ's armor, his armor. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he waged war against the kingdom of darkness. The demonic horde was at its most visible, its most agitated, It's most aggressive during Jesus' ministry. The demons decried him. 
and they attempted to demonstrate their authority and power as they oppressed and possessed human beings. But Jesus, by his word, commands the demons to depart. He silences them at a word of his command. The demons are more powerful than us, yes, but they must submit to the word of God's Son. Jesus' ability to cast out demons became the sign, the hallmark of his powerful ministry and his true identity as God's Son. He is the strong man who binds and bounds the God of this world to plunder the souls of humanity for his glory. And in the intensity of temptation that Jesus faced, he experienced temptation unlike anything we will ever experience. From his fasting in the wilderness to his temptation in Gethsemane, Jesus chose obedience every time. And even though Satan himself unleashed the full force of his cunning to tempt Jesus, yet Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Fully equipped in God's armor, Jesus embraces the evil day, the evil day of his life. He resisted that evil day of his greatest temptation. At the cross, Jesus endured the unrestrained violence of hell. And though he was rejected, though he was despised, he took the shame of the cross, the scriptures say, with joy. He believed that though he died, yet shall his father vindicate him and raise him from the dead. And the army of hell may have rejoiced at his death, but the Lord Jesus outschemed the great schemer. For by his defeat, Christ has won the victory. In his crushing on the cross, he exerts his absolute power. His nail-pierced hands drip with supernatural strength to cleanse sinners and empower saints. And on the third day, Jesus rose again victoriously. You see, friends, the spiritual war of the cosmos was won on the day of Christ's resurrection from the grave. So today, you might find yourself getting pummeled by the kingdom of darkness. Your sin has a grip around your throat. You're beaten up with guilt. You're disfigured by shame. You're crippled by wounds. Take heart. Christ has overcome the kingdom of darkness. Friend, I urge you to repent of your sin, to put your faith in Jesus, to be united to him, and he will grant you to share in the victory of his eternal life. He will empower you. He will empower you by his spirit to equip you with a whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand the schemes of the devil, however long and intense they may come. Christian, remember this victory is already yours. You already have it. Be strong and courageous because you fight a battle that's already been won. Rest in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God and watch as the defeated horde of hell scurries back into the darkness. Don't underestimate your enemy. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his evil. 
Don't you dare underestimate Jesus. Prince of darkness, grant me. We tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure. Below his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. The devil may rage against us for the moment, but he will come for us. Jesus will come for us. Christ will return. And on that day, Jesus will speak but a word. And our defeated foe will be destroyed once and for all. Victory belongs to the Lord. Christian lay underneath the weight and grasp of Apollo. And right before that final fatal blow from the enemy, Christian is able to exert enough strength to go and, and reach for his sword in the dirt, which is the word of God. And he rises with sword in hand. And he says, Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise back up. And at that word, Christian thrusts the sword into Apollo. And Apollo screeches and recoils. And then Christian stands cloaked in his complete armor, staring Apollo courageously in his eye. And he takes that sword and he jabs it again into the beast, quoting Romans 8, 37. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And at the sharpened blade of God's word, it forces the beast to fly away from the truth. Achieving victory, Christian bends his knee and thanks God for the strength that he provided and the help that he had given. What enemy stands before you now on this Christian journey? Is today the day, the evil day that Paul describes here, where Apollon, sent by the devil, stands ready to slay If so, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Having done all, to stand firm. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we need your strength. You are a God who provides strength to those who ask. Lord, you have given it freely through our union with Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Help us to be alert. Help us to be attentive. Help us to resist the devil's schemes. Lord, help us to cling in faith to Jesus, who gives strength as we put on his armor. Lord, help us to be faithful. Faithful for this battle as we depend upon you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.